0: hey everyone welcome back to another week of concessions with jared and i this week we're covering one that we had a whole lot of fun with damien chazelle's babylon i chose this film since it certainly was getting polarizing opinions from the general viewing public and i was curious about where jared would land on it also if you haven't seen babylon yet i would recommend checking it out before listening since we will be spoiling plot points with impunity if you've been enjoying what we've been doing so far, please feel free to drop a like, review, or follow on the podcast wherever you do your listening. Also, you can find me on X at Dan Concedes, and Jared can be found at Threads at Jared Concessions. Give us a holler on what you think—good, bad, or ugly. As always, thank you so much for spending time with us as we babble on about Babylon. And without further ado, let's get in the episode.
1: hey everybody that's dan laughing welcome to concessions that's dan this is dan and that's jared and tonight we're going to eat a rat hole while it's still alive because this is the asshole of los angeles happy to be here i'm Um, not actually in los angeles i don't care for los angeles too much yeah not my
0: favorite part of california it's funny when when
1: someone makes that comment, like this is the asshole of Los Angeles because Los Angeles is like the asshole of the United States. Yeah, so it's like the if, dingleberry of America. Yeah, if if Florida is just the, the putrid, infected, festering member of America, then mm-hmm. Los Angeles is certainly the putrid, festering asshole of America.
0: Oh, you have such a way with words. That's why I started this podcast with you.
1: I'm going to absolutely match the tone of tonight's film <laughs> by <laughs> just being just full, tilt. full tilt, just raunchy, not going to hold anything back. This is my maximalist
0: approach to concessions tonight. This movie is <laughs> inspiring in that way, right? Yeah. If we like when we when we do go back and edit this, we're going to put in a lot of sounds, a lot of. Oh, are we going to censor this? <laughs> no, no, I'm saying just throwing that in when someone says something. Just, oh you know. yeah.
1: <laughs> There's gonna be um a lot more happening and and a lot fewer
0: edits, I think. Oh, and also we will when we uh release this, we will have it at two times speed. You cannot listen to this at regular speed. No, 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 no. There's absolutely <laughs> no way. Right now I'm speaking
1: at half speed so that when you speed it up, it's normal. <laughs>
0: So in, we, in that spirit, I'm, yeah, I'm really I'm really hoping, Jared, uh, in the spirit of full tilt, I'm expecting you to have a pint of whiskey at hand. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, right. We watch a,
1: a, a relatively like docile movie, at least in comparison to this. And I have literally a pint of liquor tonight. We're, <laughs> we're talking about a movie that features just piles and piles and piles of narcotics and just filled to the brim with all manner of excess and booze. And uh, I, I have a glass of red wine tonight. <laughs> a
0: nice cabernet
1: yeah it is actually it's exactly oh, what me. it is it's exactly what we were drinking when you were here i'm still oh, not finished with that yeah
0: <laughs> the uh the box wine the box i always have a oh. box of wine on hand it's just it's pro, just convenient pro box wine podcast here absolutely there's bad box
1: wine there's good box wine just like there's bad bottled wine and good bottled wine now, perhaps that there's a higher ceiling for excellence with bottled wine, but the bottom of the barrel is still the bottom of the actual barrel, no matter how it, you
0: know how it's
1: conveyed to your home and and to your to your glass, right?
0: And also, l- call me up if you're a sommelier and you can really tell the difference. Then you can start getting upset about box wine. Yeah, what are you drinking, Dan? I am, and this this uh, I have a, a following theory for this. So, because I'm still at my parents' place. I am being a good son and going to my dad's beer fridge. And my dad has, which I would say is right smack dab in the center of my uh, building theory about what dad beer is. It's a Stella Artois, a peak dad beer. Oh yeah. Um, that,
1: I mean, that's more refined dad beer.
0: Well, that's, it is a dad beer. Um, so for me, a dad beer is, it has to be a, a lager, a light beer, like basically yeah. not really anything that different than a Budweiser, but yeah, to make it a, a sophisticated dad beer it's just the budweiser of a european country so heineken stella yeah dosecki's falls into that uh, mm. Peroni, um all that yeah. stuff
1: that's that's dad beer basically like any of the the real mainstream mexican beers really i would put Modelo in there as yep, well Modelo. now now the top selling beer in america by the way really yeah it was budweiser or excuse me yeah but Bud it was budweiser until like budweiser a, few, a few weeks woke. ago yeah they went woke and now they've gone broke apparently except the uh you know the Anheuser Busch company owns you know the vast majority of all of the other uh beers that have seen a, a bump in sales since that so but uh but not
0: not um modello modello is now america's number one beer interesting i i wouldn't have like that wouldn't oh, have even man. registered on my list if you said what's the number one selling Mexican Good. beer? I would say Corona. a negro Modelo is excellent.
1: Oh, it's, it's great. It's like yeah. it's bordering on it's almost like a like an amber ale. Like at least at least uh I don't know exactly what kind of beer it is, but it, it feels like robust, like a like a brown ale or an amber ale. Yeah, drink.
0: like it reminds me of a yingling. Speaking of which, uh, speaking of Yingling, because I'm out on the East Coast now, I went. I was going to go to the gym today, and it turns out a like a critter of some sort got into their power generator and uh, blew up their electrical grid. So I walk in, and they're like, "Yeah, you can work out, but there's no air conditioning." I was like, "I think I'm going to take that as a excuse to go to the bar next door, get a cheeseburger and a Yingling, and that was my workout." Brother, that is that is excellent. I approve <laughs> of these choices. If you just did that on a regular
1: basis. <laughs> yeah it's consistency you that we gotta you start could, looking you could really it. turn your life around you know <laughs> um what's good i mean or, or bad i guess what
0: What did you watch this week or what did you read or or whatever um yeah so i got two things i'm gonna throw out there one is um akira kurosawa's dreams which like surprise right. surprise late career akira kurosawa can make a very good movie um basically it's literally he had he just wanted to put a bunch of dreams that he's had throughout his life to film and yeah. that that that's it that's it it's like seven or eight or nine i don't know just a handful of vignettes that are like kind of loosely related they seem thematic in ways and it's just every single one is perfectly executed incredible to watch and uh by the end in the last couple bits it was like oh akira you got my little heart oh man so true. i
1: Dreams was the the last film no, that, that was, I watched while oh, on right. my initial Kurosawa kick when I was like in college. Um, I'd watched watched Rashimon in film history class, like like of course. And uh I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. and uh you know uh i i took to netflix to queue up some dvds for for the mail and uh, you
0: heard that people dvds you got dvds from
1: netflix yeah i'm old enough that in when i was in college netflix was a a, you know a a dvd mailing rental service or dvd rental service in the mail and uh, i queued up throne of blood because i was a theater geek so i was like oh i gotta see you know his Macbeth and I queued up Ron which uh we we got we got to do Ron on the podcast oh yeah that's definitely in my all-time top 10 movie, motion pictures Ooh. and um the last one was Dreams because I was like oh it's his final movie oh, it's gonna be the last one I didn't watch many in between <laughs> uh like the 50s and I think Dreams is from like 1990 or something yeah ninety. Um, and, uh, I was not, I didn't know that. And I was, I was just expecting like another, you know, kind of black, black and white samurai epic. Well, I guess, I guess Ron is in full color or like even like watercolor. Yeah. I I wasn't prepared for like the jump and like kind of the difference in tone. So at the time I was like, Ooh, this is not what I was expecting at all. But without even having watched it again in the last 15 years, I I now fondly look back on it, even though at the time it was, it was not my cup of tea because it was just so, uh, unexpected compared to like most of his work.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think I was even texting you that afterward where it's like, I also had, you know, you, you watch one Akira Kurosawa movie and you're like, okay, I see what the hype is about. Let's kind of check out a few more of them. And, you know, did all the, the heavy hitters, like your seven samurai, your, yeah. Throne of blood. Um, oh, yo Jimbo and, uh, and Rashomon. And I think like, because I, I ran through them all really quickly on top of each other. I kind of didn't appreciate, like they kind of blur together in my head. Uh, so I can't really like parse a few of them out like oh which one was from the blood which one was red beard like oh they're all black and white samurai movies so I kind of got the imagery mixed up uh and I'm glad that I waited a while and then watched this one because it like came out real fresh to me
1: that's awesome man I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it that's one that I I certainly need to intentionally revisit now that I've got some distance between like binging Kurosawa and now (laughs) to kind of you know have it stand up on its own and kind of judge it by its own merits but i i have no doubt that it's that it's gorgeous but i would say like the general kind of na- like you know the meta narrative around it is that it's very just unlike uh anything that he had done as a younger man
0: yeah i mean he does have like contemporary noirs and stuff like that and he doesn't you know solely do historical epics and th- that is the one like tie ty- or if there's like a structure to it is it like the first vignette is the furthest back in the past and you keep getting closer and closer to the modern day and then the second to last vignette is like in the apocalyptic future and the very final vignette, it's almost like, all right, kids, you watched, it's like an epilogue and now it's like, we're going to slow down for a second. We're just going to kind of tell you the whole point of why you're here for the last two hours. And it's like, right. okay, Kara, you earned it. Like, you can you can lecture to me a little bit, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, if if
1: anyone had earned it, it's probably Kurosawa in 1990. Kind of talked that way about about uh, Scorsese these days. And like, he's oh, in yeah. it. Martin Scorsese yeah. is in the movie, which which is um just perfect, right? Like <laughs> top like, top of the world, Martin Scorsese. You know, by like by the by 1990, it was just like you know he was already in that like upper upper pantheon of of legends. But even like even so, that must have been that must have made him feel like a little little giddy kid right like, oh, I would yeah, assume I, mean, I would assume that him and kurosawa knew each other very well at that point because at that point you know scorsese had already been like kind of you know uh filmmaking royalty for like a couple decades but still he he must have felt pretty giddy
0: i mean it would be kind of like i don't know if uh just throwing a director out there like damien chazelle was in a scorsese movie or something right now like <laughs> right yeah yeah just an example. Yeah, or like Ari
1: Aster. I, I, I wonder if uh, if Chazelle, like what, what Scorsese's perspective is on Chazelle's movies. I'm sure I could actually just Google that and find out. Uh, but I, I brought up Ari Aster because Scorsese is just effusive with his praise oh, he's over Ari Aster, over yeah. the moon about Ari Aster. Um, which, you know, I get it. So am I.
0: watched babylon three hours of pure hedonistic just in your face nonsense um eh, nonsense, <laughs> but um it was you know a 2022 film so actually just came out not too long ago time of recording right now it is june of 2023 um by damien chazelle kind of the an up not i don't even know if you call him up and coming anymore he's just a no, no he's, uh, oscar winning like film bro de jour damien chazelle yeah, yeah, like even though he's four films deep, like all four of them have landed with maximum impact. Um produced by Paramount, which I want to make a point that was Paramount because originally it was supposed to be Lionsgate and I think there's something nice about it being Paramount. Um <laughs> I'll <laughs> I'll start with uh my experience with it and uh the director in general. My first um exposure to Chazelle was probably most people's which is his first movie Whiplash, which like I just put that on because this this was in college at the time. And, like, I just heard it was like, oh, this awesome, like, cool, intense movie. And, yeah, oh, my God. Like, I'm sure people here have seen Whiplash. Like, you're just tight butthole for the entirety of the film, um, which Chazelle is excellent at, which he does. He utilizes that sense of tension in this two <laughs> um, Yeah, But then, um, yeah, his other film. So, he had First Man, which I remember seeing a little bit ago. Kind of, like, I mean, it was fine. Like, it was kind of just by the numbers. Um, and then I actually just got done watching La Land for the first time, like, I don't know, 45 minutes ago and uh, not a fan. Um, <laughs> so that's my, and then, yeah, so I watched Babylon in theaters uh, when it was out, like late last year. Um, I yeah, I, I loved it right off the bat. Um, I knew or I purposely didn't like go in with any understanding of like what, quote unquote, the discourse was about it um so it's kind of fun to come out and realize that it was very polarizing i'm very much on the pro babylon train uh a lot of fun a lot of fun uh you know just one of those one of those movies that you go to go to the big picture house for you know yeah absolutely um you go this, this it's quite the show
1: um okay so my so this i i watched the movie for the first time for to in preparation for this conversation uh just days ago I didn't see it when it was in theaters uh, because, you know, I thought First Man was fine. I, I, I learned after the fact that um, Chazelle was kind of like the, you know, a director for hire on that movie. It's, it's not, you know, like his auteur vision, which makes sense. It, it's sort of the odd man out in his his filmography right now. La La Land, I was a little bit mixed on. The first time I saw it, I quite liked it, even though I thought it was pretty hollow. I, you know, I, I de- definitely got swept up in the the spectacle of like, you know, the the it being a musical and some of the the staging and some of the camera work like around the choreography, I thought was quite nice, and like, I was pretty exhilarated by it. I, I, I'm a fan of Ryan Gosling. I'm a fan, a fan of Emma Stone, but pretty immediately got like pretty just for lack of a better word annoyed by the discourse around it being this like second coming (laughs) and you know uh i i had this uh like uh, the oscars that year were one of the most memorable ever for a variety of reasons but my good buddy matt doe since screenwriter in la he uh he would host the most lavish Oscar parties, even though it was like, you know, 15, 20 of his friends. Like, he would rent out a theater, do a red carpet, just insane decorations and hors d'oeuvres. Like, he would have really amazing, like, door prizes for, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, your 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 ballots and, like, predicting the winners and everything. And, you know, just immense amounts of alcohol. Um, you know, very, very miniature version of the first scene or, you know, the, the opening of this movie. Um, but... I so like remember the energy in that room just full of people who are like fairly film snobby like me Um, when La La Land won and the whole room just been like, ah, no, my God, (laughs) throwing popcorn at the screen, people leaving, swearing like, fuck the Oscars, like, you know, everyone's filing out. And then all of a sudden, like this surreal moment of like, no, no, Moonlight won. It says right here, this is not a joke, Moonlight won, you know, the producer of La, La Land up there. And me, like, running out of the building, getting right there, come back, Moonlight won! And, like, people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I like, running back in and all celebrating together because, like, most of the people in the room were pulling for Moonlight that year. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I liked La La Land, but I thought it was, abs- like, the idea of it winning Best pictures is absurd from the beginning for me. So I was ready to, like, be very upset. Uh, so that was a... a, a you know, kind of a fun moment. And then whiplash, I outright hate. Like, I think, I, I, I think whiplash is terrible.
0: The, um, the resident hot take haver over here. Well, I mean, I guess it's a
1: popular opinion to like whiplash. Um, and it's fine. Like it's a, like it's a well-crafted movie, like without a doubt. And what you're talking about, like the tension in it, certainly palpable. I, I dislike whiplash the same way I dislike first reformed. And that I think the movie oh. is, it's not, it's a well-crafted movie that is bad at its core. Like it, its yeah, soul is yeah, yeah. bad. I think it's irresponsible. It, it like, it has like, su- it's such a, a, just masturbatory version of like, you know, the artist suffering for the art and that making good art that I think it's like actually uh, problematic for like young people to watch that movie. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I think I think Whiplash is garbage. Um, 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 so we won't get into Whiplash because I'm sure it'll pop back up from point to point here uh, as we're talking about this. Um, but I have I have different opinions. But well, we'll sure. maybe perhaps save this for a later episode. Yeah, um, I will say this: ba- Babylon is is easily my
1: favorite. Damien Chazelle. Oh
0: movie. boy. Okay. So this was one where usually we kind of know what the other person how they feel about the the movie coming in. And I purposely asked Jared. I was like, "Do not tell me a damn." thing about what you think because i had no idea if he was gonna love this or hate this because you know babble to polarizing film and i know that he's mostly math to don't like when it comes to chazelle film so i was like this is a yeah. coin toss here
1: well here's the thing uh this movie is uh certainly polarizing and it is polarized just within me like I, i'm polarized <laughs> about this movie um i i think that it, it is like outstanding in ways and utterly grotesque in other ways Oh, boy. And uh, everything in between. And I'm not even just talking about the content. Like, the you know, this movie is debauched, right? Like, its actual content is uh, very mature. <laughs> but I <laughs> well, do think
0: that this movie also has a sort of grotesque
1: soul. And I'll talk, we'll talk about that later. Oh, boy.
0: Well, let's get, uh, yeah, let's start cracking into it. Um, so the first thing I really want to talk about is Babylon and like a lot of Chazelle stuff, it is about the artistic process. It is about chasing your dreams. And this one in particular, this is a movie about Hollywood movie making. Um, and so I put it's, you know, it's up here in the notes. When my I was kind of turning my head over on like how to lead this, I think this is a good place to start because I feel like there's a lot of these sorts of movies are coming out. Like we're in kind of a mini wave of like of director's looking at film history, uh, for various reasons. Like the Fablemans is a great example. Once upon a time in Hollywood is a great example. Um, with some new, uh, newer directors, you could look at stuff like Nope or X. Like there's just a lot of movies about movies coming out these days. And, um, I think at least like my first uh, little, uh, that I'll throw out to see what you want to do with is like, I think part of that is because we're kind of in a moment, at least within Hollywood film or Hollywood filmmaking where like things are kind of getting a little ossified. Like it's, you know, it's, it's remakes, it's reboots, it's, um, franchise filmmaking. So like the, I feel like, and you're, you're having these more like auteur driven films or like directors are known for their bold original styles. Like all those directors I just mentioned, none of them have ever made, um, a franchise film. I mean, Spielberg invented a franchise if that counts as anything. Um, but, uh, what do you think about, you know, movies about movies? What makes them good? What makes them kind of masturbatory? Uh, where does Babylon sit in this? And why do you think there's, or what do you think about my little pet theory about why there's kind of this resurgence of movies about movies?
1: Yeah, well,
0: I mean, I, I'm not sure if I, like, just agree with your your assertion that, like, we're in, kind of currently in a glut of them. Right, or so um, I suppose mean, resurgence is a bad word. I, I suppose... Yeah. I mean, the way that they're looking at it now, I think, is in light of the fact that we're in this kind of stasis of original filmmaking, at least within mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. Obviously, the, the, the 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 really
1: simplified answer is like, you know, people write what they know. People love what they love and filmmakers know filmmaking. And they can assume that a large swath of their audience love movies themselves and not just like going to the movies or watching movies, but they, they love the craft. It it happens in other, in other mediums, right? Like there's so, so like how many novels are about people have a novelist, just main character. Right. (laughs) I, you know, I, I think that the, of the movies that you mentioned, like the Fablemans is certainly the most masturbatory because it's literally an autobiography, but you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Nope, and X are all great examples of sort of deconstructing why we want to see movies like this, or like why we want to see stories about filmmaking. And they're very they're all very subversive. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a is a great example, and so is so is Babylon. About like, even though it's a movie about making movies, it's also about deconstructing the community around movie
0: making and both are are and are set at points of like of turning or inflection like hollywood is changing yeah certainly and uh, you
1: could probably say the same thing about about nope but you know i i don't think it's it's always necessarily masturbatory because it's pretty rare to see like a self-aggrandizing version of this other other than the Fablemans, <laughs> um, you know, even like um, movies where it's like the mo- like the movies themselves, or like like other love letters to movies, like Cinema Paradiso, or um, mm-hmm. well, I guess we you, you could we could talk about Fellini, um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. E- like even when uh, like they are like kind of unabashedly loving, there's there there's still like a, a like a wink and a nod of like kind of self-criticism or or introspection that uh that I think goes a long way to sort of temper the like any kind of like masturbatory streak that these movies have. Uh and I think like that's like why I, I please like if I'm putting words in your mouth out of turn, please correct me. But it seems like that's the reason why you didn't really like the Fableman's.
0: Yeah, and then to go like I'm not saying they are inherently masturbatory. Yeah. I guess I was asking like what separates it from just like people are good at movies talking about how much they like movies to other people who mm-hmm. like movies, which is just like a, you know, a little circle jerk. And yeah, I think, yeah, the difference with the fabelman's and the other ones is like Steven Spielberg is very much the subject of this deconstruction of filmmaking, but, but it's almost like if there's anyone who's allowed to do that, it's Spielberg. Because like, if you look at the history of Hollywood since the fable, like the, whenever the Fablemans has got made, yeah, it's Spielberg and his, you know, the wake that he left. So I, I almost can't blame the guy because, like, how else would he even tell that story without almost inserting himself into it? Because he did, like, monumentally shift it. So here's the question, then. Like, why is why is Damien Chazelle making
1: this movie in his 30s?
0: Yeah, and that's what's interesting is, like, even when I said, like, Nope and X, which are two movies that are earlier in filmmakers careers, like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the Fablemans are, are what? well we'll see how far tarantino winds up going but these are presumably like late uh yeah late stage parts of these people's career um yeah, and yeah david and Chazelle, this is his fourth movie like i he's going to have so many more movies left and he's already doing like uh yeah these like sort of self-aware uh retrospect I mean it's, it's not the first one i mean la la land's kind of the same way um sure. i mean i think yeah it's tough to say um i mean part of it i think does have to do with this is This is sort of purposely going, not going against, but trying to give like a firm alternative to studio or to franchise filmmaking where it's like, it's like an old, I mean, an old 1920s golden age, golden age of Hollywood spectacle where it's like, hey, spend your entire night, spend like three hours. This movie almost, if it was much longer, should have had a fucking intermission in it. Um, And like, just get taken away to another world for a few hours where we're just gonna entertain the absolute hell out of you yeah um, you don't need to know the anything going into it you don't need to know the characters of the ip there's no post-credit scene there's no homework you gotta do this is just a self-contained story where we're just gonna throw the whole kitchen sink at you and I, I
1: love that about this movie like i love that it's just go for broke swing for the fences balls to the wall any other cliches about you know just <laughs> just being excessive that you can think of more um, of a, More of them. excessively well, amount yeah an excessive amount of excess look it would be disrespectful to make a movie about pre code Hollywood excess and not have your movie itself be pre code excessive, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, he he knew what he was doing. Like he was he was like paying respect to these gigantic, spectacular movies with way too many extras and you know too, like too much violence and uh, just like kind of pl- playing up the you know the the Roaring Twenties, right? Like like how like how how do you make a movie?
0: small like how do you yeah, make this like kind of wild west the filmmaking is still going on like the haze code hasn't even kicked in yet
1: yeah yeah and and that's what chazelle is talking about like like around around the the conversation of this movie is yeah hollywood in the 20s was literally like the the like the tail end of the actual wild west <laughs> and it, it wasn't until uh you know that the, the talkies came about that like New York artists and New York money made their way to Hollywood and kind of more of like the moralistic kind of ideals kind of settled in and, and kind of pushed out the uh, the old guard and, you know, the sophisticates, you know, came came around. And, uh, you know, obviously you see that in the movie really, really explicitly, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I I love that this movie was made because, you know, we're going to, we're going to go back to it a lot, but, you know, seeing seeing the like the singing in the rain version of the exact same story. Uh, while that movie is just utter perfection and just glorious to watch. It is probably
0: not as honest, right? No, not at all. Um, and act, fun fact, a little uh, behind the scenes here, I had never seen thing in the rain. And we were talking like just in prepping for this. Uh, I sent, you know, the whole outline with things I want to talk about I was like and It's like, why haven't you mentioned singing in the rain? It's like, why would I? What do you mean? like go watch singing in the rain and then i did and i'm like oh <laughs> yeah yeah the, okay i see why now <laughs> yeah ba- babylon i mean
1: it, it borders on like remake or, or parody like it had i mean o- obviously the movie itself calls attention to it right when like this climactic moment is all about singing in the rain itself no no i mean like beat for beat like it is uh it is remarkably similar and you know intentionally so like chazelle's not at all you know trying to hide that like la la land basically just pulls the style from singing in the rain. And now Babylon, his very next film as writer director uh, kind of pulls the narrative <laughs> <laughs> and uh, singing in the rain and Babylon are obviously in like such conversation with each other as our La, La land and singing in the rain, mm-hmm. but
0: less so La, La land and Babylon. Like I think they're quite different movies. I think they're quite different movies, but it's like they almost like they're two sides of the same coin in a way. Where I think, yeah, they're both like drawing very heavily from Singing in the Rain. But um, like you said, LaLanne's pulling the style where Babylon's pulling kind of like, I would say like the emotional core of it or the the ethical or moral concerns that fall within the story. Yeah, I could see that. Or like them like blowing them all to hell. (laughs) Well, and I was commenting on this to you when I was watching Singing in the Rain. First of all, absolutely adore Singing in the Rain. Holy shit. And I I think I pretty much said or I said something along the lines of like, Babylon is just singing in the rain if singing in the rain wasn't held back by the haze coat. Like if they could actually kick open the doors and like when you saw like oh the the lavish you know uh, Hollywood party where they first see the first talkie like everyone it's like a little raucous but like everyone's still pretty chaste. I'm like no it pro- even though Babylon is like going you know twelve out of ten with their raucous parties like it probably was closer to Babylon than singing in the rain. Oh yeah yeah I I would I would bet um that 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 babylon is
1: is closer to the reality of it but i mean it's got to be somewhere somewhere in the middle like, mm-hmm. like it, it weighs babylon but like what like was was 1920s hollywood like a like an actual
0: uh, an actual babylon <laughs> like well you know, that's um that's an interesting. Uh, I remember re- listening to a Scorsese interview about Wolf of Wall Street, where it's like that's another incredibly excessive film, and he actually said like from his uh, from his research on Jordan Belfort and like learning about his life, he actually toned it down. That that's that's I, I love hearing that, and I, I've experienced <laughs> that my, myself uh, ri-
1: writing a thing that that I'll tell you more about later. But mm. like where I'm like I, I was just I was originally just kind of putting down. The just bare truth of it all? And then I realized kind of partway, like, ooh, this is like coming across as like kind of bad melodrama because it, it's mm. so it's so
0: over the top. Just telling the truth is like unbelievable. Oh, and yeah. Like, i mean, going uh, to dial it back. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you're watching, I don't know, like a, a baseball game or something. And the, the, the home team comes back in the n- bottom of the ninth down by the like Grand Slam in the bottom of the ninth. Like in a movie, that's cliche. In reality, yeah. that's incredible drama.
1: Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Funny, funny you mentioned that. We're we're gonna have to hash out uh, Dan's feelings about sports movies in greater Ooh. detail
0: one day. Yeah, that'll be a later episode. I have strong feelings about those. But um, okay, so and the one piece I think if we're gonna, you know, we we've invoked Sing in the Rain. We've invoked a couple of the other movies, or or just generally movies are, that are that about um, Hollywood filmmaking um this you know just in my perusal online of like commentary about this um one of the big things you see over and over about anything about hollywood or anything that like mimics a style or brings it up or looks backwards is like oh this is a love letter it's a love letter to cinema it's a love letter to hollywood it's um i don't know a love letter to a certain art scene at the time or something like that um and you know i'm sure people have seen this same commentary. It's like, if those are love letters, Babylon is more of a suicide note. And I like that really (laughs) stuck with me when it came to separating, like, what is Babylon doing differently than these retrospectives where even like, uh, even once upon a time in Hollywood or no per X, like they are, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They kind of know that this is, you know, uh, it's not quite as magical as it seems when they're paying homage. But um, I think Babylon, like they almost like, It's almost like the only way out is through. So they go like (laughs) so heavy handed, so glorious that like you're just kind of you just get anhedonia by the end and you're just spent because that's what Hollywood probably was actually like at the time where it's so beautiful, but it's just fucking draining and emptying in the end. It's a it's a giant tar pit. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, tar, tar, I, I really like that the tar pit.
1: Well oh. done. Um, it li- yeah, it literally is. So yeah, I, I, I might disagree with that, that this isn't a love letter at all. I, I do think it is both. Um, and you know, this is something that that has come up like out of Chazelle's mouth himself out of like, you know, commentary, like we were talking about before, like we saw that literally like that love letters versus suicide notes thing. Um, I, I think it's both man. Like, like it, it's definitely like, uh, uh, a takedown of like Hollywood as a cesspool, and I, I I might even think that it's a takedown of current Hollywood, and I think we should talk about that a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah, um, we got we got that down. Uh, uh, actually, that's a next point. But so I, I mean, with without a doubt, this is also a love letter to the art of movie making, warts and all. Though in this movie, mm-hmm. certainly a lot of warts to even the art of movie making. But man, like this movie ends with like a a pretty true pretty direct just like here is the power of movies like you know like like our main character sits and watches singing in the rain and experiences like his, his a lifetime of catharsis sitting in the movie theater like mm-hmm. like that that there's no way getting around it man this is all oh, this is just as much a love letter to to well, the movies as as any of the other movies we've talked about but this but this movie's three hours long and it also gets to be a suicide note and,
0: it, I'm about to meantime. say I don't know why it's neither or I think actually the two are deeply intertwined with none, one another it's like you know it's it's uh, I, if you've ever been a moody teenager where like you, you first heard the times like uh oh, every cynic is just a disappointed idealist um I'm <laughs> flipping my hair over my eye right now um but it's like because he so deeply deeply loves and respects filmmaking like that's why like like the reality of filmmaking is so heartbreaking to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It could be, or, or just the reality of the community around it. And he's drawing on, on just on mostly like real things here. Like, um, like clearly, um, Margot Robbie's character is, is, Clara Bow like the biggest mm-hmm. like you know sex symbol 1920s like flapper movie star it girl like literally like the reason that the term it girl exists is because Clara Bow's big breakout was in a movie called it and so she was the it girl and mm-hmm. it just kind of stuck as like kind of the flavor of the week actress um but yeah like in this there's a little bit of like a, a, a wink and a nod to this in the movie but Clara Bow like, like a rumor went around that she fucked the entire USC football team and like, it, it stayed with her to such an extent that she just completely left Hollywood at like 32 years old and went and like retired, like on a ranch. and was just a mom, she, much happier ending than what Margot Robbie gets. But I mean, literally, they just took like an actual story of someone getting aggrandized and then almost in the same moment, <laughs> chewed up and spit out by the town, by the industry and um, kind of just amplified it. Like what happens to uh, Nellie? in the movie is uh is like so fucking like hor- horrific but it is but so familiar it's totally so familiar grounded in, totally familiar and grounded in reality yeah uh, yeah i mean it, it's no it, it i don't think it's an accident like any of the casting in this movie is an accident and um Mm-mm. one like you, you listed out a bunch in like our our outline here that we'll talk about but the one that gets me the most is casting jeff garland from curb your enthusiasm in uh mm-hmm as like the main kind of like producer who's kind of pulling all of the strings and like, like the reason why all this is happening. And like Jeff Garland, there's no way to put this, you know, gently. He he's like Harvey Weinstein's twin, right? Um, Like there's no fucking way that she's wasn't just like, you look like Weinstein, you got to play the sleazy producer. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, all the casting kind of reflects that. Like, the <laughs> is it too early to get into this? Because I, I love this, this aspect of the movie.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, let's flip it around. Let's talk about the cast, and then we can get into uh, the other points. Um, yeah, because like like you're saying, like, I think the casting is very deliberate. It's very, it's very aware of, it's almost like he, okay, like he almost thought to himself, okay, I'm making a movie set in the 1920s. I need 2020s version of this actor and this actress and this producer and mm-hmm. like, but and not like for the characters, like who represents this 1920s figure now? I want that person in my film. Yeah, the the funniest example of that,
1: <laughs> besides the Jeff Garland thing, is uh, just the fact that like Margot Robbie plays the actress who was like, similar so similar to samara weaving's character but just like a little bit more likable to the public yeah yeah, yeah, and yeah she yeah. just like steamrolls her career at <laughs> the, the beginning of the movie and like that like 100 has happened to samara weaving in in real life because she just has the the like utter misfortune of looking very similar to margot robbie um, also
0: australian what what's in the water out there in australia yeah you got um, hemsworth's you got margot robbie you got samara weaving yeah, and you know, uh
1: probably an unpopular opinion, but I'll I'll die on this hill. I feel like Margot Robbie is the poor man, Samara Weaving. That's oh, that's man. my personal opinion. Like you you could easily live in a world where they were flipped. Absolutely. Like like maybe like like Samara Weaving's agent didn't secure that Wolf of Wall Street audition <laughs> and that was it, right? Yeah, it's just it's hilarious. I remember um when I first heard about this movie and I saw that they were both in it, my my gut reaction was like Oh, there, there, there has to be like a, 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 a like a narrative purpose that like the two of them have to be like mm. similar, similar people. Like I thought Samara Weaving was going to play like Margot Robbie's stunt double or like something like that. And I think I asked you, like when we when you first brought it up, I was like, is there like a reason why Samara Weaving and Margot Robbie are both in this movie looking like twins? Um and it turns out there is, and it's like far more cynical than I had in my head. <laughs> but yeah, it mirrors real life. And I think that was actually intentional and like kind yeah, of amazing it shows, that, like, that some the more things would do it.
0: Or, yeah. I mean, it shows the more things change, the more they stay the same. Where this has been happening for the last hundred years. Um, just you know, in a uh, to competitive environment and one person wins, the other one loses. Uh yeah, well, Samara Weaving's not losing. She's in Babylon as well. Well, that, um, yeah, that's true. But but you know what I mean. Like it stands. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like one person becomes a household name, where the other ones, like people who like movies, know who she is. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, and um, you know, who knows? There's there's a future
1: where that's true for both of them. But yeah, as of right true. now, yeah, Mar- Margot Robbie is certainly one
0: of one of the the it girls. Yeah, and I really actually like. I don't. I don't know why personally. Like I. I think. Casting Brad Pitt in that role, I think, was probably one of the the better choices to make. I think we were even talking about it uh, earlier where um, on paper, I think you even said it, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio would have been a good pick. And it's like on paper, that makes a lot of sense where he kind of has this very classical Hollywood charm where Brad Pitt doesn't really fit like golden age of Hollywood leading man looking guy. Um, but Leonardo Caprio, definitely like to a T I could see him easily in like a silent film era, uh, movie star, but like th- there's something about Brad Pitt's like current position as a movie star. Like he's, he's among like this old, like one of the final generation of people who you could say are like a leading man that his name could sell a movie where like, I, like the Tom Cruise is, or the, well, maybe not anymore, but Will Smith. Yeah, Keanu Reeves, Brad Pitt, like these are guys that um back when you kind of sold a movie on the 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 weight of its lead actor. Yeah. Um he he was among that generation, probably the top, I would have to argue. Um, and now that we're in a different phase of Hollywood where we're in franchise filmmaking where you don't go to see a Chris Evans movie, you go to see a Captain America movie. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's like such a, a brilliant choice to put Brad Pitt in that position.
1: Yeah, it is because he is one of those like the one of the like you said, like one of the the last remaining like true movie stars. But at the same time, it's like he is in a bit like if our thesis is that like most of these actors, if not all of them have like sort of a real life counterpart or, you know, like they are a real life counterpart to the characters. He's almost the one that doesn't fit so much because. I mean he he won an oscar very recently yeah he's adjusting gracefully to the new environment he he had a big hit with bullet train like the dude is like somehow even better looking than he was 30 years (laughs) ago like some (laughs) fucking freak and uh yeah and like he's so he's so wonderful and he's like finally getting his due as a serious actor like he won that oscar like I, re- I remember like, like people thinking him of him as like the pretty boy. like he's right. a model on screen. but but you know, he has always been a character actor in a leading man's body. And uh, he's really getting to flex that now. Like I, I love it. Like basically ever since like Tarantino got a hold of him, that's been the case. And man, he's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um he's just as good in this movie as he is in Inglorious Bastards or Once Upon
0: a Time in Hollywood. See, interestingly, um, I was kind of thinking more of his work, like not even because I mean, of course, those are those are excellent roles, but I was thinking like his more somber uh roles. Like I was thinking like uh uh oh just oh Tree of Life mm, or yeah. uh, local favorite Benjamin Button <sighs> your very favorite
1: yeah, (laughs) very very favorite and you know he's he and that's not to say that he hasn't always done serious movies that were demanding of him as an actor but for some reason he really didn't get his just due until like the last five to ten years
0: yeah he i always compare him to uh um scarlett johansson who is also an incredible actor but they're both just too beautiful to notice yeah
1: totally And, and i think scarlett's like getting that like kind yeah. of entering that yeah. phase of her career as well right now because yeah yeah she's she's a great example there, there's not a role for her in babylon because because brad pitt's in it and she would have played the same character somehow but yeah I, i'm really glad that she's uh as of like you know a few years ago with like jojo rabbit and marriage story um she's like now kind of in that pantheon of like just fantastic thespians yeah, yeah. Let's not get too far. I can talk about how much I love Scarlett Johansson all day. Damn. We'll do that. We'll do that when we talk Asteroid City. But I think, now, having said all of that, it was really smart to have this sort of audience surrogate
0: in Diego Calva's character of Manny. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, like, you know, obviously. Because in but, a way, you, uh, among the the main four people, because this is, it kind of takes on a bit of um, an ensemble cast feel at times. Right, uh but yeah, the, but Manny is the protagonist. Yeah, Manny is the main eyes that you're seeing through. And like among the people that we just mentioned, I mean Diego Calva is by far the least likely person you will know his name walking into this film. Yeah, i know I I don't
1: I don't believe I've seen him in anything else. I certainly didn't know his name. But yeah, like actually seeing like having someone who is like a quote unquote outsider to the system itself and like working to break into it against all odds is like really smart to like just highlight like just to put an even like bigger magnifying glass in front of like the, the 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 more of the like characters that you would know um and kind of seeing his reaction to everything like he's the one that's constantly being the voice of reason mm-hmm. and uh something really satisfying about it and then he really does carry the movie in a way which is it's strange to say like when like margot robbie and brad pitter his co-stars but he he does in a way he really does carry it well, i'd say i mean it's semantics but like he
0: anchors it yeah that that's a better that's a better way of, of putting it for sure where yeah i mean if you just had all these high flying like some of the most charismatic human beings that are currently walking the earth all just doing that at each other like you kind of get lost in the sauce there and you need someone that's like yeah on the ground like he's still charismatic he's a great actor he's it's just he his role was not to like just absolutely munch up every single inch of screen when he's on it oh yeah i mean i mean he he served his purpose
1: well in that regard and like a lot there's you know sometimes there's a danger and like if you're if you're the person who is you know taking on that role that you kind of get lost in the shuffle or oh, performance wait, like, gets. I'm thinking of another good example.
0: Um, oh, the the Great Gatsby movie with uh what's the the actor uh that plays Nick, oh what's his name that Toby Maguire could... <laughs> <laughs> What a freak. What an absolute freak. Oh, I love him in this movie, man. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I I read I read reviews being like, you know, Toby Maguire was wasted in in this movie,
0: his character doesn't go anywhere. Like, fuck what? you, that's just wrong oh i know i was reading reviews where people are like why the fuck did we have the whole toby Maguire bit that was like you could have just pulled yeah. it out like, no no don't do no, that no, no no no
1: it's the fuck it's the it's the reunion of the pussy posse uh <laughs> um, those at home
0: who don't know what is this uh uh yeah uh, pussy posse is it a a a, <laughs> well, uh, a cat club of sorts people who for, appreciate for, tigers <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, don't they they, they they sing about it in this movie um they uh <laughs> no you know i'm i'm gonna be a little hip, hypocrite here because i'm gonna say pussy a lot and and one of my big notes about this movie is like damien chazelle really did just open up final draft and type the word pussy way too many times <laughs> um so this actually goes i think this strengthens kind of the the thesis that you know, this movie might be just about just, just as much about current Hollywood or modern Hollywood as it is golden age Hollywood. Um, so the pussy posse was a group of young thespians and other entertainers in the, the mid nineties who were all on the rise and gave themselves the moniker of the pussy posse. The lamest thing on the planet said pussy posse consisted of their kind of de facto alpha ringleader, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, as well as uh, young upstart actors at the time, like Toby Maguire, and Ethan Suplee, and Lucas Haas, and am I, uh, I th-
0: they all also- wrong to think that Jake Gyllenhaal was in there.
1: You're wrong. Yeah, he's he's yeah. younger than those guys. I think uh, he got his his big break when he was about the age they were in, like the early to mid '90s and like the early to mid '00s. Uh, okay, um, like but uh, anyway, they called themselves the Pussy Posse, and um, they were basically like the bad boys of hollywood in the 90s you know being the most debauched like partiers like there's a story where they were all like at some kind of function and they ran into like elizabeth berkeley from saved by the bell and showgirls and they're basically like hey come out to the club like knowing that like her fiance was around and like they're like you know don't bring him and then he hears about it he shows up up at the club and they like fought him and like hurt him but the whole thing kind of came to a head when like the like those guys all decided to like make a movie together and i'm trying to remember the the name of this movie do you do you know it off the top of your head that features Uh, joe mcguire and leonardo DiCaprio? oh yeah it's called don's plum no they they, they they made it themselves like like mcguire and and dicaprio and like lucas haas and like all those guys they like made this movie and then uh, before it was got a chance to get released, all of their representatives basically like locked it down so that it would never see the light of day because it's so misogynistic and just like, you know, chauvinistic and just fucked up and like would just totally like tank their careers. And of course you can you can see it on the internet now, but um, yeah, back in like 1996, it basically like, it, it like would have like fucked up Leonardo DiCaprio's chance of, of being in Titanic. Like basically, like if this movie would have can't come out, James Cameron would not have gone near him, and then we wouldn't have today's Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, like having sex with the same age women as he was back then. Anyway, that's my primer on the Pussy Posse, and what I'm what I'm getting at is uh, three three of their like central figures: Toby Maguire and Lucas Haas and Ethan Supley all appear in this movie. So there is this like little miniature Pussy Posse uh, reunion that I think again calls to attention the lifestyle that this movie
0: is about yeah yeah i mean and i yeah i think you're totally right that like this and I, and I mean i just generally have this kind of theory or not theory but just approach where i'm looking at any film or piece of art that's looking backwards at anything that as much of a commentary at that time it is it's a commentary on our own times as well um so actually uh we can get into that is like you know this movie is set in the 20s which is conveniently uh, a nice round 100 years ago from now um so let's uh let's, let's talk about these really uh strange and seemingly alien to our current modern audience uh factors of the 20s um strange things it it, it will be tough for you guys to understand so i'm just going to slow it down um in the 20s there was extreme wealth inequality there was uh, the decadence of the rich was hitting an all-time high while uh, the deprav or the depravity of the lower classes was starting to swell and becoming uh, pretty much untenable to a certain point. Um, you had the threat of war looming over in Europe. Uh, you had uh, the whole uh, the whole thing was the whole decade was was kicked off by a global pandemic. Yeah, uh, I know this is hard for you guys to imagine, but like, I'm just trying to give you guys a little bit of context for the 20s, because uh, it was a very different time from our own. Um, yeah, you have a uh, technology is booming. Uh, actually, even gender roles are being challenged at the time with stuff like flappers. It was at for its time was a very uh, was a very challenging to the norms. Yeah. Um, uh, sexual promiscuity and like, and just like general, uh, like conservative norms were being challenged at the time too. That was then tying into all the, the decade or that was closely related to all the decadence of the time. And, uh, the decade ended, uh, poorly for everyone. Uh, there was a giant, uh, crash. There were, uh, finance, uh, there was a giant financial crash. And I mean, Fortunately, we have none of that going on right now, so it, I, I understand that it's it's really difficult for Damien Chazelle to try to make a parallel between these two uh, particular moments in American history, but like, God love him, he really worked hard, and he really um, did try to make some interesting parallels, I mean, Jared, how do you think he pulled that off? Wow. That was a, that was a remarkable sarcastic
1: tirade. I mean, you kind of just hit on all the points. Like, you know, it's, it, it wasn't a leap, but I will say like, even, even like similarly to, to the like just focusing back in on Hollywood. Um, I, I think what might be being said is like, cause you might look at this movie on the surface and we've been trained to kind of think of any time, like, you know, that was that far before we were born as like a more civilized or like, a more like like a like a buttoned time, up and conservative a, 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 and, well at least that there was decorum like where people weren't talking about the things that we talk about so candidly now <laughs> and you know that's probably fucking bullshit it's just that the permanent record kind of shows that right because of movies like singing in the rain which while fantastic yeah it, it's dishonest i i think that what we are like what a lot of people don't realize is we're still living in that age of decorum where if you knew what was going on hmm. in hollywood you would f- want to fucking raise it to the ground like the real babylon or not well the, the biblical babylon right do not we raise so, actual babylon please we do my, not uh, approve of that my sunday school days are creeping right back when i said that, like, they're like they're like what god really did uh, to yeah. Babylon. Uh, but yeah, I I think that might that like that might be kind of like central to this movie is like hey like things in the twenties, particularly in this community of, of like you know big time filmmakers, you know like it, it might seem uh, like you know there was like it was uh, unknowable and like a lot like a lot of this was like hidden from the public because it doesn't seem like it should have been that debauched and you could probably say the same thing now and you'd be just as surprised.
0: Well, and even debauched as in uh, you know, you, you got the big parties and the drugs and the hedonism and, and all that stuff and like that, you know, that is kind of easy for your mind to swallow. It's like, oh yeah, you have all these like very wealthy, uh, beautiful people all in the same room, something like that's going to happen. But I think what, uh, and then where Babylon wisely also highlights is like, just the rampant, deep and pervasive abuse of human beings required to make this yeah. beautiful thing. with Without a doubt. And I, I think, like
1: you know, we, we we're sort of just scratching the surface of it now with like the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein getting taken down, Kevin Spacey getting taken down, Brian Singer getting taken down. But man, like,
0: but that still feels like whack a mole. Like you're just getting some of the the biggest bads, but like the board's still there. Yeah, exactly. So like, it like is
1: our, our so like is Damien Chazelle like is he is he biting the hand that feeds him that much, or someone like Brad Pitt who you know like if if anyone is like privy to like the actual dark underbelly yep. of the stuff brad pitt would, would would be right like how like just the, like if that is the case just the fact that these people made this movie at all is like pretty fucking wild and also like not not surprising that like a lot of the like discourse like amongst like the elite critics would like
0: you know well, switch, you it was kind of muted for something yeah. that like on its very surface this almost could have been oscar bait um, well, it won like, some Oscars, right? It won some technical Oscars. Won some technical ones, but like as you're saying, like a it did not do well in the box office. Um, B the the critical acclaim was a little more aloof than you would have expected. Oh, it was very this. no, it was very mixed. Like I think Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes critics critic meter is like fifty, like fifty percent. Now you know I'm not to say like oh, uh, you know the the Hollywood cabal is against this movie, but no. it, it, it does like have because this movie um like within the genre of like usually when you make a movie that's like lovingly looking back at hollywood you're you're pretty safe that you're going to get pretty positive warm reviews and this one just like it has all the bone to do it and it like it feels like it's weird that it didn't until you think about what the actual content of the film is and what it it's trying to like uh, a say back to Hollywood like in in ways it reminds me of some like David Lynch films uh not not like in the style or anything but in it's messaging where like I'm thinking specifically of like Blue Velvet or uh Inland Empire 2 where it's it's looking at like it shows you the glossy I mean yeah Twin Peaks also even does I mean really all of Zubra where it shows you the glossy classical Americana kind of images that you've grown to know but it, it twists it a little bit in ways that kind of shows you how this sausage is made. And it makes you feel pretty bad when it like it, it sh- kind of shoves your face in it. Uh, David Lynch doesn't shove your face in it, but uh, Damien Chazelle sure does. Oh yeah. I mean, and th- that's a good, that's a good transition to like what we
1: should, we should talk about just like the whole kind of maximalist style, mm, that mm-hmm, kitchen mm-hmm. sink storytelling uh, paradigm. Like it, because it, it this movie does stand out in that way like i think by and large we're in a sort of minimalist period in filmmaking like if you if you if if you discount you know obviously like the huge spectacles that martin scorsese doesn't even consider cinema but if you just narrow the scope to movies that martin scorsese would agree are movies um we're well, kind of even- in, like this minimalist type of like type of type of
0: ebb right even uh, Marvel movies, I would say, in a way, is minimalist because it's not aesthetically daring at all. Um, like you know, it was a, a long criticism of them, and they're they're trying to fix it, but they just can't. Where it's like, why are Marvel movies like? Why are the colors so fucking flat? Why is everything gray? Why is everything like, uh, like not interesting to look at? Because really, the the aesthetic experience kind of isn't the point <laughs> of a Marvel movie, and right. and you're seeing that with like you know, Ragnarok's a good. Uh, example of an exception to that rule but then you're seeing like i don't know the latest ant-man movie too where it's kind of showing uh the rot underneath both of them where they're trying to do it but they can't do it because they don't like well one it doesn't look good because they're just abusing their workers (laughs) and overworking them so it makes a bad end product but then it like it also like yeah there's a lot of pretty colors but it rings really hollow because there's nothing like there's no soul behind it there's no meaning behind it other than like ooh like that's those are wavely wobbly colors that you put there. Like, there's no thought behind. Like, well, why are we using this aesthetic? To what end? How does it serve the story? And even if they had a good idea or had a very firm grasp on it, like they're not going to fucking pay the the graphic designers or give them ample time to to work to actually make it something beautiful and worthwhile. So, I, I guess then my question is like, why why was this movie?
1: Made in 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 such a way, like I, I touched on it earlier, where it's like it would be sort of weird to make a, a movie, kind of about you know this pre code Hollywood, like where, 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 when all the movies were were gigantic and overblown, and just not and like, a, not, not a single rule to be seen on what yeah, you're allowed and, to do. and not make a movie with this kind of that that same spirit. But like, man, it, it seems like it's such a, an odd duck and it really could only happen because someone like Chazelle like, was such a darling. Like La La Land, the success of La La Land, both like commercial, commercially and, and critically, it just basically gave him just carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wanted. And it seems like he really seized on it in a way, like to his credit, a lot of other filmmakers probably wouldn't have gone this far and spent you know 70 million dollars making a movie that he probably knew was going to be divisive
0: right yeah like this this was not designed this was not designed by a focus group or a boardroom. this was just designed by someone who loves to make movies pretty fucking awesome to
1: see a movie like at this scale this budget being this daring i i mean i think that's the reason why i like it so much and and other than that man we we should just talk about like the just like what makes this movie good. Like, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of like big ideas, but like,
0: Oh, <laughs> this movie ooh, has, ooh. can I, can I talk about yeah, yeah, probably yeah. my favorite single scene, which is the scene when they first try and do sound. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So like, this is,
1: this is a scene that is a remake of a scene from like a really famous scene from singing in the rain where um the kind of the lead actress, she has cut her teeth, being like a starlet in on like on the silent screen, and now is having to deal with all of the kind of the technical complexities of introducing sound and like working with microphones, hitting your mark certain ways. And in Singing in the Rain, it's like, it's kind of like this goofy little, like, you know, a minute of like, oh, isn't this character so stupid? She doesn't know how a microphone works. Like she can't like orient her head in the right way. And it's played for laughs and it's played for like, you know, it's kind of charming in a way. It light-hearted. Just, like, it's lighthearted. It's brilliant. lighthearted.
0: But Dan, tell us about how it happens in battle. <laughs> oh, my so going back to Whiplash, just his uh, Chazelle's just uh, natural talent for building tension where it is funny. It's still a funny scene where you got Margot Robbie, you know, she's she's finally made it er, as a, as an actress It's still in the silent era and she's a big deal. And now they're switching over to, to sound. So they're going to put her in one of the sound uh, movie uh, talkie. Um, and, you know, the technology is brand new, so it's still not very good uh, or it's not like it's not very flexible. So you have to, like, stand exactly in the right spot and speak directly into the, the correct area and like even just speaking lines is now new for these actors who never had to do it before. Uh, And the the technology is very sensitive. It's very prone to breaking down in like who knows how many different ways. So there's just like so many things that can go wrong. And it's already hard to shoot a scene even today. Um, So you just see every single thing that could go wrong. And every time something goes wrong, it just gets a little more tense. And oh my God, it's so much fucking fun. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, And that intensity, it is... Like, not to not to like sell this movie short one bit like it is palpably uncomfortable like it is like it is like one of those things where it's like it, it's almost like horror movie suspense oh, where it's, yeah. like you're just like waiting for the next thing to go wrong and it, it builds it into such a way that where like it finally goes right. you feel like genuine relief <laughs> um I felt I felt the same relief when they finally get it right as I did when the movie Skinnermmerrink ended. <laughs> um,
0: man chazelle um, should
1: make a horror movie i bet he, he actually a chops. he would he would fucking crush it um but anyway like the the reason that the scene worked well not the the reason but one of the big reasons that the scene works is that we really get put in the shoes of like the line producer who's like in charge of it going right who's played by pj Byrne, who's like one of those character actors where you see him and you're like oh yeah it's that guy i've seen him what? in a million things and i can't name any of them But he is like front and center in this scene. And just like every time something goes wrong, he gets just more (laughs) and more just out of his gourd and like he's in the audience shoes where it's like he's really like just embodying how we feel and like the frustration and man, he carries the scene like a champ. Like he's I think he's in the movie here and there in other scenes. But he's like the he's the star of this like 10 minutes, 15 minutes sequence. Which, which, by the way, like the like in singing in the rain, it's like this light-hearted yarn. In uh,
0: in this movie, a guy dies. Yeah. During <laughs> during the the scene, because you also become increasingly aware the whole time that is hot as fuck in there. Yeah, like the the actual like the the camera, the, like the actual film camera,
1: is so loud that it cannot be in like the same, basically the same room as the microphone and the actors. So they build this this kind of enclosure that's I think just probably just made out of just like metal and so the camera operator has to be in there and when they finally like open it up at the end he literally falls out dead.
0: Oh there's another thing that I know you know our modern 19, uh, 2020s audiences might not be able to understand but in the 1920s uh, there were like very little labor laws and a and protections against workers so like stuff like this was like not that it happened all the time but like it was something that was on the table because of the erosion of you know labor laws and protections for people. Um, hard for for people to imagine these days, but yeah, it, it used to be like that a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> Jeez, man, that's not going to get old, is it?
1: <laughs>
0: well, it's a hundred years old, and it's still not old yet, apparently. Oh yeah, I mean, people in in the year twenty one twenty three, what are they going to say about us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, I can't wait for Babylon twenty one twenty three when they're making. Yeah. Oh man, they're making some like. <laughs> Some extravagant movie about like some Marvel film or something like that? <laughs> no, it's it's not gonna be made by people. Oh. It will be made by AI.
1: Now at some AI. point, like
0: yeah, when is when's Marvel gonna make their like eight and a half or something like that? I don't know. If is
1: that really gonna happen? Like, I mean, I I has like is anyone like who worked on those movies been inspired? Like, I, is anyone who's like a big fan of those movies, are they kind of parlaying? Their love for those movies into their own filmmaking career they must be right so like know. who knows who like anyone who was like you know 10 years old when they saw the first avengers movie maybe they're going to be you know coming of age into like you know prime filmmaking age I mean, in the next like I decade might, or so i might
0: meet you here in a hurry because iron man oh wait that's not how you well it. iron man came out in 2008 the first avengers came out in 2012. So, yeah, I mean, if you were born on the... Well, let's not even say you were born on Iron Man. Say you were six, you know, just old enough to remember going to see Iron Man. So you're born in 2002. I mean, you're 21 now. So, like, kind of getting up on film, Prime Filmmaking
1: Age, most people don't get to make their magnum opus that age. But, yeah, I guess if it's a Damien Chazelle, they might.
0: <laughs> and I'm also more, like, usually these kind of... uh what self-aware kind of retrospective is about the own genre that they work in. Like that's usually when the genre is on it's like last legs. And that's like the only thing that'll get people to watch that kind of filmmaking anymore. We're not even close to that with uh superhero movies. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a cycle there. Like I fe- I feel like the horror genre has kind of met
1: that meta stage like several times already. We talked about that at length on the mm. screen, Scream episode, but or I'm thinking like a uh, revisionist Westerns is a good example. Ooh, one thing i will say about this movie and la la land and i don't remember whiplash well enough to but i would guess that it probably does it too amazing title card stinger oh yeah i can't think about i'm trying to think about that babylon's is like 45 minutes into the movie oh that's right and that's that's become that's become more commonplace and like that happens in more movies these days But god babylon it, it does feel like it's uh it's it is a long time into the movie and those first 45
0: minutes are just chalked to the brim with content nice. oh okay so speaking back of kitchen sink uh filmmaking so uh the the opening 45 minutes with the giant you know back canal back canal is how you say it? back canal i've read the word uh, of time. Back, yeah, canal. Uh, back canal. canal. <laughs> um that, you know, it, it, the first thing that can easily come to mind is like Baz Luhrmann filmmaking and like The Great Gatsby and all the party scenes there. And uh, I would say uh, I personally, I, I hate to offend the, the good people of this podcast. I hate Baz Luhrmann films. I think that they're grandiose. They're excessive in the worst ways possible, where their, their kitchen sink uh, is broken and needs a plumber. This kitchen sink uh, can make beautiful, wonderful nice glasses of ice cold water coming out of that sink
1: uh what is it what is it that you think is like kind of within you that makes you say Baslerman bad uh
0: Babylon good because it says nothing like he has nothing to say the the excess is just for its own sake or if he thinks he's saying anything I can't fucking hear it it's uh, unclear yeah yeah or, I kind of see that or um you know what, what makes the 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 maximism work is kind of coincidentally it's the quieter moments in between
1: the oh my setup god yeah
0: contrast where yeah babylon what's your favorite like, quiet movie
1: in babylon what's your favorite quiet moment in babylon
0: oh man um i mean the c brad i mean the end of brad pitt's story arc is pretty uh a pretty great moment but i mean it's not great but you know what i mean um oh man uh I'm trying to think about like, yeah, like the not flashy bits. Cause th- I mean, that's what obviously stands out in my mind and they stand out so well because they're like, they're timed well and they're contrasted well yeah. against the quieter well, moment. There's, there's the, mo- there's the moment where, where Jack kind of confronts
1: Eleanor about the article that he wrote about him yes. being washed up. That's and, actually, uh, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. She has that mo- like really big monologue about like mm-hmm. how he'll, he'll be remembered and how like some kid who's not even born yet. will see him on the screen and feel like he knows him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that kind of stands out as being like very very quiet and but also his very ending with like him and matt what, what's her name is it madam Madame lynn i forget the name of the character but he's like she's going off to europe to work for pafe and he's like telling her like like his demeanor is just like the same kind of like kind of surly but very warm like older older guy and just being like super like warm and charismatic with her like even though like he knows he's about to go end his life um, right. the one, the wonder that happens, like that kind of follows him up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He asks the he asks the waiter, like, what's the biggest tip you've ever gotten? $50. Wow. Who gave you that? You did. Oh, and then he just, he like just throws a wad of hundred dollar bills in his hand and goes and kills himself. That, that again, a movie that's full of like really, really just fun fucking massive wonders with a million things going on in the background and extras upon extras and special effects upon special effects and stunts happening i think that best wonder is like his final
0: walk up the stairs because mm-hmm. because like what i'm saying with where baslerman doesn't work and, and a great example of another one where it does work is wolf of wall street is like the the film kind of earns the right to go to kick the brakes off and goes balls to the wall where And you have to earn that in the in-between moments and in the quieter moments where I just don't think I've never seen a Baz film that earns it for a second.
1: I would agree with you there. Like his, his, his movies are kind of opulent pop art and without a whole lot kind of underneath the surface. And which, you know, that's
0: That's fine. If that's what you want.
1: Well, and we both might be missing sort of the the subtext there and that's totally possible, but I,
0: I I, like you uh, have, have never really accessed it myself. Right. Well, I mean, at least in uh, Gatsby, I can stand on firmer ground that it's it's not there because like I knew the story going in, like I knew all the dots and all the themes and everything like that. You have to study that book like four fucking times just to go through American school. So in the Elvis one, too, it's like, I guess I'm not an Elvis scholar, so I don't know. I just kind of didn't like, yeah, you shouldn't walk out of a movie with that kind of uh, punch in the face kind of aesthetic and just be like, eh. They, uh, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie really glossed over the part where he's a pedophile. (laughs) Isn't there, um, oh, who's making it? Um, someone's making one about Priscilla Presley, and I think it's almost going to be like, hey, you guys fucked up Elvis, uh, so we're going to correct the record here.
1: Yeah, I saw that the trailer dropped last week. I haven't watched it yet, but what I keep hearing is that the style is utterly different.
0: Uh, Presley, it's someone who very well known, but I wish I could remember. Uh, so yeah, um... Where yeah, where where would you put Babylon? Like if if uh Baz movies were gonna just gonna sit on one end and I'm gonna put Wolf of Wall Street on just like the peak of excessive throat chuck everything at your retina filmmaking that works uh incredibly. Like, where do where do you put Babylon? Yeah, right in the middle. Um okay. like that, I mean, I would say it's like certainly
1: not nearly as just hollow as your average Basilman movie, but doesn't reach the heights of like a once upon a time in Hollywood or a Wolf of Wall Street or, uh, you know, a lot of the, the like monumental epics of yesteryear that this movie is about. Oh, okay. Um,
0: well, that makes more sense. Cause, uh, you have, you have in the notes that you have once upon a time in Hollywood as a good example of everything in the kitchen, saying storytelling. I'm like, really, that's not, I wouldn't even say that's Tarantino's most bombastic film. That's like a quiet one for him, but now I understand it better.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's kind of like, I mean, it's also just about Hollywood and also mm-hmm. stars stars the same stars and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean, Babylon is uh we need to talk about the ending for me to really like unlock how I really feel about Babylon, but you know, Babylon is is utterly entertaining the whole time. Like it's it's so long and it doesn't quite feel its length.
0: No, real and if quick. It does hours.
1: and if it does, it's it's in a good way a lot of the time. Like just kind of feeling the excess is the point. Mhm man i i do think that like that ending montage i know that it's uh at this point it's like that is kind of a thing that a lot of people are going to harp on it as
0: what they don't like but man i've got some thoughts about why i don't like it yeah i i tend to agree too that uh upon like when it like if i were to like when i just watched it for this one i turned it off right when that kicked in because it's like
1: that really? I, I don't
0: need to to watch it
1: okay here okay here, here's my my thing i think this movie i, I like this movie a lot better when it knew that it was stupid uh, like, okay like this movie like goes to such utter lengths to like point out like hypocrisy in hollywood and how it tears mm-hmm. people down and how beneath all of the magic is the seedy underbelly and then like and and that and but then it, it like I, my problem isn't so much with like it kind of aggrandizing the 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 whole industry as it does, which it's fine. Like like we said, the movie's been sort of on like kind of walking that fine line the whole time. But here's the thing: Babylon is a good movie. Like I I think it's not a game changing movie. It's not a it's not like a milestone picture. It's not like a, a huge like just kind of earth shattering picture but man that film history supercut at the end of this movie is so fucking presumptuous
0: <laughs> like, yeah um
1: like or sorry go ahead like uh, especially because like you know the movie that manny is sitting down to watch that just kind of like shatters his whole perception of his own life is singing in the rain uh-huh this movie is such a like a almost like a parody itself of singing in the rain that it's almost like, are we meant to believe that the like quote unquote like real life events of this movie somehow served as the inspiration for like the fictional in this universe singing in the rain? Cause, cause Manny's whole thing is like, you know, he wants to have been a part of something that means something that people connect with that. Like, you know, he can kind of look back on and, and be, be proud of. And in this reality, singing his basically his almost like part of his life story like being being like an inspiration for singing in the rain is the thing Hmm. so like the movie kind of forces you to like compare the two right and like i'm sorry man babylon could be five times as good as it is and still not be singing in the rain (laughs) like and i like babylon it's just singing in the rain is is you know it's It's so singular it's like, you know, like we were saying, like, if, if you're using like the sight and sound list as one of the benchmarks for for excellence, Singing in the Rain has been has been occupying the space between like number five and number seven for like, you know, the, the whole time the sight and sound list has existed. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, like literally like, the I'm, I'm sorry, I need to fucking get this out. Like, it, like just the fact it, it goes from like all the way from like the horse in motion to Avatar. But yeah, then it asserts itself in there somehow. Like, that is so fucking presumptuous. Like, there's no way to, like that you like you can, like, the filmmaker can invite you to try to compare this movie to, like, The Passion of
0: Joan of Arc or The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and you, you not to just cringe at how weird that is. Eyes, eyes were being rolled by me as well. Um, see, that's interesting. Eyes I- were being sliced in half. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my, the thing, A, a yes. Um, yes to all of that endorsed. Uh, uh, this is concessions approved. The, see, the funny thing is mine was actually much simpler. Uh, why it bothered me. A, it just kind of felt like, I almost felt like I was watching like a YouTube uh, film essay or something. Um, yeah. but, but anyways, uh, the real thing that bothered me is like, what where Babylon was so interesting is that it was, it was somehow having its cake and eating it too with like, you know, loving film and loving Hollywood and all the glory and all the glamour and also being very clear-eyed at just how fucking rotten it is. And then, and, and it kind of play, picks, it, it, it chooses both sides. Like, I, I I would say almost the opposite of fence-sitting. It's like firmly on both sides somehow. And then the, the end montage is like, no, 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 I like I the glitz and the glam. I like that side. It, it, it's worth it. Yeah, basically said it says, it's all worth it, though. Isn't it worth it? Look at everything we have. All that oh, human suffering yeah. and Great. the 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 meat factory that has been Hollywood for the last hundred years. we like, got yeah. Avatar though, like, guys. Like like yeah, like it's a it's a mill for for
1: child abuse, but we've got Arrival of a Arrival of a Train and The Wizard of Oz and Psycho in two thousand one and Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. we have Ben Hur and Psycho and Raiders of the Lost Ark and and The Cabinet of Dr Caligari and Babylon yeah
0: it's just it was it's a real big pill they're asking you to swallow after that yeah it's
1: so, it's silly as fuck and like also it just i don't know it seems so like like weirdly amateurish to have a super cut of anything in your
0: serious film like uh, yeah, it yeah. Almost, like it almost feels like it's tacked on in a way it's like Yeah, I would just cut it off and just never watch it. If I had it on DVD or something like that, I would just never watch that end bit. I mean, even like I, I even like I feel
1: almost the same way as like the movie just going like outright explicitly comparing itself to singing in the rain like that's. That's a little weird, but like you know, the whole movie has been somewhat of a yeah you, of a grandfon singing in the rain. Yeah, but but like you know, Manny kind of sitting there and like seeing if like that fantastic of a film and thinking about his own life and like reveling in just the power of the cinema and like having shedding some tears to himself. That's kind of a lovely ending. Yeah, you should the just super, stop there. The supercut just kind of proks and
0: prods to the point where it's like just so cringy. <laughs> um well that's kind of funny that uh my my next point and my my interesting question of the evening for jared is i really do think like as we're saying this is a very polarizing film you can find people who fucking hate everything about this movie i think this movie will age very gracefully in time and i do actually think like at least within like 2020s filmmaking I mean it's you know it's 2023 right now but if we made like a gap between 2013 to now uh, let's just say instead like I think this will be one of those movies that lasts a lot longer than a lot of its contemporaries and and then it got me thinking like okay what are other movies like that that like have that kind of you know they might have flown under the radar people appreciated it a little bit but like I'm wondering about the movies where people look back where I think I was saying this about oh last week with I Am Cuba where it's like this movie is light years ahead of its time it is absurd and so there are there's two really that i want to bring up um one has already aged a little bit and i watched actually last year i'm like holy fuck like how is this movie not getting a reappraisal already and it's killing them softly have you seen that one that's also brad pitt right yeah also brad pitt yeah, oh and uh,
1: uh Scoot McNary. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh yeah, I, I I've seen it. I saw it once when it came out. It was like what, maybe 2013, 20, 20, like 2012, 2015. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: I haven't thought about it since. So, to be fair. The reason why I think it's going to age gracefully, um I don't know if the director had this in mind or not, but like basically it's about the financial crash and it's like talking about these very fundamental human like like cultural rot within the U S that is intimately tied with that. And maybe at the time that movie was just about 2008, but now that we're about like two crashes later, it's only uh, aging well for very unfortunate reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I need to 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 point something very fundamental about like what the American psyche is like and how it ties to these sorts of boom and bust cycles yeah i i can yeah
1: i can definitely see that and and i man i remember so little about that movie this this will always come up i think it's in our discussions but man anything <laughs> between like 2009 and 2013 i i was drunk and high
0: watching whatever it is that we're talking about from those years and i probably need to rewatch it remember kids the big message of concessions is you need to spend at least four years not in school but doing lots of drugs
1: yeah And you too
0: can have a podcast,
1: provided yeah you'd like to be like me.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I you know I'm having trouble thinking of a movie that I would say is like either polarizing or judged harshly
0: that I think will will see a reappraisal. Um, I think they're harshly necessarily like Singing the Rain is another great example where it was like appreciated at the time, but I don't think anyone at the time would say that it was going to go down as one of the top ten films in film history yeah yeah that's true i, I wow. do wonder when when that that appraisal sort of started
1: to happen when it became just undeniable that it's like impact and its influence was mm-hmm. just everywhere
0: even beyond like musicals beyond like kind of spectacle movies see if this jogs like here's a more recent one that maybe this will help is um uh because i think the director will i if i think he's due for a huge film um or he'll probably make a splash eventually uh koganada or Konagana? i always get the mixed. uh but after yang which came out mm-hmm. last either very early 2022 or late 2021 i mean this movie when i saw it, it's like th- i could ar- i could already feel it's like this is ahead of its time like nothing else is coming out like this like this is just not the style of what sci-fi filmmaking looks like i and i i see this guy his voice is so singular and so because i've seen his other one uh columbus um like he's 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 due. like, I, I think he's, it's almost like um how, you know, I really love the Daniels films even before everything everywhere. And like, I wasn't shocked. Not, not that I wasn't shocked, but like when they became, you know, kind of the, the darlings all of a sudden with everything everywhere, I'm like, yeah, uh, that makes sense to me. And I feel like coconut is uh, similar in that vein. Now, not that they have similar styles at all, but you know, they just have that, that, that special sauce, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So one
1: example that uh well okay i'll do two so here's a movie that actually enjoys extreme critical adoration and and one i don't know i want to say like seven or eight oscars and i still think it's it's not
0: fairly assessed yet as mad max fury road really I well mean, it's people, probably on the it's on the sight and sound top 100 but it's like it got votes it should be like in the top 20 <laughs> like <laughs> that that movie is singular
1: like, I, I, the only reason I think it won't be appraised even better in the future is that no one's ever going to make another
0: movie like that because the fact that that movie was made at all is absurd. Well, I'm almost wondering if um, if it will almost raise to even higher heights because, like, you know, Furiosa is on its way and there's just no yeah. way that Furiosa can live up to that same hype. So, like, not that, like, I, I, I'm I, personally hoping that it would be awesome if Furiosa hits that same high note. But, like, if it doesn't, that'll only make Fury Road that much more incredible yeah yeah to, to me there's nothing like it i mean
1: like i've i've watched that movie in every possible arrangement <laughs> like when, especially like when it when it came out like people were doing like because because george miller talked about because like the, the black and chrome version did come out in theaters and on Ooh. blu-ray where it's just it's basically the same movie it's just you know in black and white um but he had talked about wanting to do a silent version of it that Ooh. doesn't have any of the dialogue doesn't have uh, any of the sound effects, just the music and the and the images. And I saw like a you know, a fan made version that was that took the black and Chrome version and just did that, removed all of the dialogue, removed all the sound effects and just left the score and the images. And man, it's a it's a different experience and huh. just as good.
0: And yeah, because like, I would so, think that like I would need that like the engines revving and all that stuff. Like you could take the dialogue out, no problem. But like I feel like that tactile nature is so core to it, and I would wonder what would happen if you took that away. Oh man, it's it's gorgeous, and the story is is so clear.
1: Like, par- like parts of the story are are more clear. Hmm. Um, it's incredible. Um, that movie is going to be poured over and studied and dissected and. I don't, I think George Miller will probably perish before he sees just truly the
0: impact that it'll well, have to like
1: future generations.
0: So that's interesting. Cause yeah, I think you're hitting on something that sometimes films don't get their full appreciation until the next generation comes up and points back to them and yeah, says like, and, th- this is yeah. what got me into filmmaking. I studied this film obsessively and I, I, you know, that's in the DNA of the things I make now or something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the other one I would point out, and this might even be a recommendation is uh, a movie that I've said before doesn't get the credit. It does just because this filmmakers oeuvre is so just gigantic and, and legendary, but Martin Scorsese's Hugo is a Mm. fucking masterpiece. Like it's easily like up there with his best movies. For me, it's my very favorite Scorsese movie and it's going to like, I think there's going to be, there's some people who are probably like teenagers or younger right now where like, they go to film school and they're like, oh, I'm going to delve into all the Scorsese stuff. Like I, like, you know, this guy, you know, back when he was alive, when I was, when I was a kid, like, you know, like everyone, like he was like the greatest living filmmaker and I'm going to watch all of his movies. And they'll like, they'll like, oh, like he made a kid's movie. This is kind of weird. Like, what is this? And then they'll see it and it'll just like open their soul in ways they hmm. never imagined. Um, and then that'll be the thing. And that's good. I, I really think that like, that's going to be from like, like, like years after his death, that will be uttered constantly in the same breath as raging bull and, and Goodfellas. Hmm, Like easily, I mean, that, That'd be cool to hear. Um, and, and it's uh and it's a movie about movies and about making movies and about what movies can do for you. And it's also very maximalist and like, but it's like the most wholesome movie in the world. Like huh? it's so like, just fucking cute and like perfect. Um, but it is also just about film history and about like, hollywood but it's a little bit more veiled than something like that babylon but <laughs> yeah i mean i mean it's just that scorsese is so massive that like yeah i mean hugo is a critical darling when it came out but it's going to stand the test of time better than most of his movies
0: mm. um yeah i still haven't seen it we should probably put it on the queue at some point so you can just gush about it we um, need to see it in the movie theater oh that'd be awesome i'll rent out a movie theater and we'll go and go and watch it <laughs> i'd be yeah i'd be down um Okay, so yeah, that might be your recommendation. I'll do real quick recommendations because we uh, we're at an hour 50 right now. Um, one, if we're just doing pure, uh, it, like it's almost like mix these two movies together and you'll get something like Babylon. <laughs> the first one is Gaspar Noe's Climax, which I don't know if anyone here has seen that, but it is uh, terrifying. It is incredibly well made. You feel awful the whole time. Um, every sense that, like every sensual experience that film can make, is turned dialed up to fucking twelve. And yeah, it's it's incredible. And then, but then you blend it with uh, this movie from uh, the French occupation called "Children of Paradise," which is not about filmmaking so much as it is about like just theater and collaborative art and the joy of making it. And it's just this, like, very uh, humanistic, very, like, uplifting kind of uh, story about, you know, just the power of uh, camaraderie and solidarity and storytelling. And it's like it's literally a French movie that is sort of defiant against uh, authoritarian ideology while and it was made while uh, the Nazis were occupying France. So, like, it was kind of made as like. A fuck you but like instead of a fuck you it's like oh we're not gonna like instead of getting down the dirt with you and like yell at you we're just gonna be better and just make something beautiful man that sounds awesome i i've like literally not heard of that i it once again only i only knew about it because of the sight and sound list um there's a lot of shocker there's a lot of good stuff in there
1: yeah, um i'll have to i'll have to take a look um but yeah hugo's the recommendation my other one it's like it's, it's 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 the same recommendation i made for you it's like if you I've seen Babylon but you haven't seen Singing in the Rain. <laughs> it's almost like you haven't really seen Babylon. Uh yeah, I mean it's in direct conversation like it, it's uh it it is honestly a little bit strange that Damien Chazelle has thus far devoted the the peaks of his career to basically commenting on this one other movie.
0: Yeah, just saying. Like, yeah, what's wait, what's his third take
1: on Singing in the Rain going to be? Right, like like he has to have a singing in the rain trilogy that that uh, started <laughs> with, with La, La Land, continued on the Babylon, and then we'll just, just be a straight remake, like an actual just this is yeah. singing in the rain from twenty twenty seven. Like, yeah, I don't know, man, because uh, like first first man, like that's that's not like a you know, an o an piece. Like his last two movies, really Babylon and and La, La Land, and both of them are. You know, not at all trying to to kind of veil the fact that they are in conversation of Singing in the Rain. So mm-hmm. apparently, I mean, it must be his favorite movie of all time. Like, I'd be very, very shocked to find out if there's a movie that he holds in higher regard.
0: Um, well, maybe we'll find yeah. out. He'll make two other movies that are just two sides of the same coin of some other yeah. classic film. Yeah, he's he's going to make it is- Kane. Yeah. Okay. He's,
1: he's the got way. the
0: kind of hubris to do that, though. Babylon also
1: converses briefly with citizen Kane with that scene where William Randolph Hearst gets vomited on. Oh yeah. (laughs) Babylon also points out that it's like, you know,
0: this on the same medium as citizen Kane. (laughs) Yeah. That we didn't, we definitely didn't bring up all the, uh, uh, body fluids that this film likes to indulge in.
1: Oh, there's piss and shit in the first five minutes.
0: Yeah. You get, you get shot on directly by an elephant within the first five Uh, to 10 minutes. Lots of blood.
1: Uh, what's your favorite line from Babylon? And I ask you because I want to share mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, oh, that's funny. Like, Babylon, A, I'm just not one to, like, like pull single lines out. Like, whenever someone's like, oh, I love that comedy, it's so quotable. I'm like, ah, just, like I don't know, it's just not how I watch movies. So what's your favorite quote, Jared? My absolute favorite is when Jack, played by
1: Brad Pitt, they're, he's kind of riffing on the, like, absurdity that you'll speak out loud in movies and he like says yeah well someone will write a line like frankly scarlet you're a cunt (laughs) (laughs) which is hilarious right it's just hilarious on its own just like just like like listening to that, you know, little parody of Gone with the Wind. But it's even better when you realize that that scene is taking place in, like, 1929. And that novel wouldn't be published until, like, 1936.
0: And that movie wouldn't be made until, like, 1939. And also that the, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, was, like, a really controversial line at its time. And, yeah, about 10 years earlier, it's like, you're a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right well
1: no i mean like like the, this is taking 10 like 10 place 10 years before anyone would have not yeah. gone with the wind yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it's just funny frankly Scarlett, you're a cunt <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just hearing uh, Brad
1: Pitt say cunt is funny i mean okay i just love it when they let brad brad pitt uh badly speak italian that's just a thing in his <laughs> career now i just love it why does this keep happening <laughs> he probably just enjoys it Awesome. Uh, also, I will point out that uh, we did not at
0: all talk about the character of Sydney, who's like the jazz, the mm. jazz
1: trumpeter. Who <laughs> almost
0: liked- that's fitting with the theme of like almost a criticism of it is that like, you know, Chazelle tries to like put in uh, you know people of color in his films, but like I just don't think he does it very well yeah like the outsiders in this movie
1: like basically like he calls attention to like these people who are not white and like they're like the ones that are othered in the movie, which you know is how real life has certainly played out for a lot mm-hmm. of people, but I love it the like running joke where he's talking to like his bandmate and he's constantly like you're flat, you're flat, stop that you're flat, and he like he's like making fun. It like definitely gave me flashbacks of like you're dragging, you're dragging. yeah dragging. <laughs> Ugh, uh, I almost feel like that might might have been like a little intentional like kind of self-reference.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even putting uh, like like I was saying, uh, I just watched uh, La La Land before we hopped on the pod and just seeing J.K. Simmons pop up for a second and start instructing a musician on how to do things. I'm like, Damien, yeah, Damien, yeah. what are you doing here? I'm nervous. Well, I think I can't blame the man. People fucking love Whiplash. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm more meant like, where are you taking me? You've you've hurt me before with this exact situation before. I don't want to go right. here again. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it's play for laughs and uh
1: and well kind of both of them, but yeah. Yeah, That's sick laughs. Well,
0: so what are we doing next time? Oh we are we are uh joining our favorite whimsical boy for next week, a little Wes Anderson with his new flick asteroid city. Yeah, and this is gonna be a first for concessions and
1: because we've been on like a fairly Fairly religious cadence of of recording one of these a week, but, uh, you know, we, we both saw Asteroid City after already agreeing that we're going to do Babylon this week. And I think like, we're both just jazzed up about it enough to be like, Oh, we we should just record an Asteroid City episode. Um, yeah, so what we're going to do Asteroid City, who knows like if when once you know that that episode gets released that it will still be the the new Wes Anderson movie because I know he actually already has like a sh- kind of a short film that's coming out this year mm-hmm. um, that, that's coming up. Uh, but yeah, next time will be Asteroid City This uh, retro futuristic also uh, movie about kind of the process of making um, a kind of visual storytelling piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be able to kind of connect some thoughts back to Asteroid City and the, the relationship or back to Babylon and, and seeing in the rain and kind of how the, like the, the relationship between making theater and making movies kind of collide
0: in all of them. Oh boy, can't wait to blast off to Asteroid City. But until next time, kids, I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. And frankly, Dan, you're a cunt.